our look back at the Flint water crisis culminated with a live event featuring the author of What the Eyes Don't See, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, and Jim Ananek, the Democratic minority leader who lives in and represents Flint in the state legislature. In the front of a live audience at the Detroit Public Library main branch, Dr. Mona talked about her experience during the crisis and writing the book. And we talked with Senator Ananek about not just fighting for justice at the state capitol, but also living through the crisis as a father. It was founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the WDET Book Club finale event. It's really great to be here. This year's uh, inspiration for the book club came from Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha and her book, What the Eyes Don't See. Let's give her a hand for... <laughs> and with Jim Ananick, who is our Democratic Senate Minority Leader uh, and also represents the city of Flint. Uh, in the Senate. Let's give Jim a hand for being here as well. Jim, I, I want to start with you tonight, and I want to sort of place you in the conversation about the Flint water crisis. And, and one of the reasons I want to do that is not just because you represent the people of Flint, but also because you live there. Um, and your introduction to the Flint water crisis was personal. Uh, like everybody else's in the city of Flint. So I want you to start by telling us about your personal experience with the Flint water crisis, um, and we'll go from there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's a good question. That's a great question and a great way to start. You know, one of the things you can imagine, you know, this obviously got a lot of international and national exposure in late 2015, but prior to that, uh, when the decision was being made uh, by the emergency manager to switch over the water source, when it first happened, you start to get complaints from people. And I think one of the things that sometimes even gets missed is the summer, so it happens in April, April of 2014, think about how long we've been dealing with this still, uh, in August we have our first E. coli breakouts and we have to, we're telling people to, to boil the water and then both local folks and the state keep saying, don't worry, this is the last one, next time, we got it all fixed, it's improving, there's no problem, there's no problem, there's no problem. And as you imagine, more people are complaining. Uh, I never had the discolorization issues, but I had uh, difference, uh, difference in smell. Taste would, would be funny. And I'm not, obviously, there's no smell to lead. There's no taste to lead. But you knew something was going wrong. And every time we'd bring it to somebody, uh, they'd tell us everything was fine. This, gone, this goes on for quite some time. A number of meetings myself and my other colleagues have. And Stephen mentions it's personal. I, I was talking to... Uh, friend of mine in the audience, and he has a, a four-year-old as well. So my son just turned four in July of uh, July 30th of this year. So my son was being, you know, was being born and uh, during the process of this happening, and my wife and I adopted. So we have absolutely no idea what his prenatal care is. So the anger sometimes people may see coming from me is the fact that I have a bunch of, you know, tens of thousands of constituents that were lied to and were treated as if they didn't matter because they're from a community that's full of poverty and other issues that we have in Flint. And I, I mean, I think that's important to note. This, is, this would not have happened in other communities, right? And it wasn't because residents didn't come forward and didn't complain and, 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 and make, make noise and obviously even do research and, 
and, and do science, they looked different, they sounded different, and maybe uh, they didn't seem to matter as much as some of the people. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes gets missed. Obviously, Dr. Mona talks about it and others do, but sometimes in the larger conversation, they just thought these people didn't matter as much. Uh, and my son and my wife and I live with those, live in, live in that community our whole life. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain to you what it's like when people say, we don't care enough to tell you the truth. We don't, we don't think you matter enough to make sure that when we know something's wrong that we tell you about it so you can take precautions. So the, the anger I think that is real and that has caused the complete lack of trust in my community, uh, you can kind of see where it comes from. And, you know, to your point and to your, to your question, I mean, it's, it's you, as a parent, as a, as a person who represents, you know, 90,000 people, you ask yourself, what could I have done differently? You have guilt, you have, you have feelings of anger, you're, you have every sort of thing on the spectrum. And that's how a lot of people in Flint feel. Did I allow my family to drink lead in their water? Did I allow my family to be hurt? So I think sometimes when people look at it, the conversation gets looked, you see sometimes people doing the political conversation, oh, it's just a bunch of Democrats, it's just this, it's just that. These are human beings that did nothing wrong, that had a decision thrust upon them over their objections to save a little bit of money. And then when the science showed there was a problem, they ignored it and they lied to people. As you can imagine, I, have, I was a very optimistic person when I got elected in 2011, and sometimes I'm still an optimistic person. Uh, but it really gives you a real shock to your system about what, what sometimes people think of you. And uh, I think it's, I'm hopeful that people learn quite a few things from this. Uh, obviously, just on a, the importance of quality of water, the importance of transparency, the importance of making sure people never lose their democracy, but also that all people, no matter what income they have or what they look like or what they sound like or where their zip code is, that they matter. Because uh, that's supposed to be something we all value in this, in this country, and it clearly wasn't the case in Flint. And, and when you met Dr. Mona to talk the first time about the water crisis, you asked her about this personal dimension of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I, I mean, you could probably tell in my voice, I mean, I was scared. Like, did, I mean, what's going to happen to my son? And I think I was speaking on, on behalf of myself 100%. I mean, there's no question I was thinking about my family, but I was also thinking about all the other kids that I'm, you know, charged with representing. And it, it's still something I think about every day. Yeah. And I, I still remember taking that phone call from Senator Ananick and in his voice, just as you can hear it now, you can hear that fear and that anxiety and that guilt. And here is a parent who wants to do absolutely everything to protect their child. And they have a feeling that, that they may have failed and, and maybe even hurt them. Um, so when we had that very first phone call, and it's a scene in the book, I was in a conference. I got called out of the conference. Um, I was with Dr. Reynolds, a colleague, and he's like, this is Senator Ananick. He wants to know about the research that you're doing. And we talked a little bit about the research. I'm like, yeah, I'm worried. These numbers don't look good. And then there was a pause in the conversation and Jim asked, he's like, can I, he said, I, can I ask you a personal question? I'm like, of course, you know, I'm a pediatrician. That's, I get, I get kids questions all the time. What, you know, what can I do? How can I help you? Um, he's like, my kid, you know, is on formula, you know, he's on formula. And how do you make formula? You mix powder with water. He's like, what should we be doing? 
And my first response was, you should breastfeed. And then he shared that, not him, his wife. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> then he shared, which I did not know, that they were, you know, his, his child was adopted. I'm like, okay, you can't breastfeed. Um, but I'm like, avoid the water, you know, use bottled water. Uh, do not expose this baby to this water. Um, and then he also shared that he, Jake had a cold. I think he was like stuffy. And I'm like, he's like, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, use a humidifier and, you know, use saline for nose, all the things that we recommend for kids with stuffy noses. Um, and then like, but don't put this water in the humidifier. You know, it started to affect every single thing that you would do to care for your child. Um, and that was my very first kind of conversation with Jim, which was about kind of the, the bigger picture of what we were seeing, but really the, the very personal, like this was his kid who he's entrusted to care for. Yeah. I uh, now doc, go to her yeah. clinic. She's now technically my kid's doctor. So, <laughs> <laughs> And he's got the cutest, smartest, most amazing kid in the world. Dr. Mona, I want to, I want to spend a little time getting you to talk about just how uh, remarkable it still is that we're having this conversation or that you had that conversation with Jim in the wealthiest nation on the planet that you were saying to him, don't put water in the formula. Don't put water in the humidifier. I, I, I wonder a lot. I know you spend a lot of time now going and talking about your book and uh, talking to people who are reading it there has to be a part of you that still just marvels that any of this ever happened. You know, I have this privilege of, of sharing the story and, and sharing it with folks really all over the country. And whenever I share the story, just how sharing it when I was writing this, you know, relived all those memories, it to this day boggles the mind. And like, I literally have to pause and my mouth drops that this happened here, like it happened here. Like we, this is the richest country in the history of the world. It is the 21st century. Um, there's rules and there's laws to that people who wake up that, you know, that our taxpayer dollars pay, that people who wake up to make sure that when we turn on our tap in Flint and Detroit and Gross Point, that it's safe. Um, it is mind boggling. And on top of all that, it's Michigan, like, right? This here's, here's you know, what are we surrounded by? Fresh water. <laughs> we are surrounded by the largest source of fresh water in the world. And, he, and here's Flint, like literally like smack dab in the middle of the largest source of fresh water in the world, in, the, in America, in the 21st century. Yet we have a people, a population, a city of predominantly poor and minority people that, that to this day are on, on bottled water and filtered water. It, it, it should make everybody like angry to this day. And, and, and it does to me. Yeah. So let's go to a really sort of foundational question, I guess. The title of your book, What the Eyes Don't See, which I think is a really great title for a number of reasons. I mean, it, it calls on a number of different dimensions of what happened in Flint. But tell us how you, how you landed there. Oh, so there was about um, 10 pages of title options. <laughs> um, and, you know, every part of this book um, 
was a labor of love. I mean, just the references took like two weeks and um, and the index and uh, the, the title was was really hard to come up with. Um, you know, there was words that it had, there's titles that had Flint in it, which would have been um, easier for people to understand that this book was about Flint or a title that, that included poisoning or toxic or water. Um, but none of those really kind of resonated with what this book was about, which was not just a Flint book, but also this, this larger kind of memoir and really kind of call to activism. Um, so then I stumbled um, upon uh, the title, What the Eyes Don't See, and it was, it was mainly um, from having heard that phrase when I was a trainee. So we had an attending physician, um, which was like a supervisor doctor um, in, our, in the pediatric intensive care unit. And he was really kind of tough and he really demanded a lot of all the learners, which was great. And whenever we were rounding, which is what you see on TV where a bunch of doctors go into different patient rooms and try to figure out what's wrong with the patient and come up with a plan, if we got stuck somewhere, like if we didn't know a diagnosis or if our differential, which is our long list of possible diagnoses, wasn't long enough or we couldn't really pinpoint the exact pathophysiology of um, the mechanism of that you know, illness, um, he would tell us, um, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. Um, and that stuck with me. The eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. Pretty much, you need to read more, you need to learn more, um, because if you don't know something exists, you're never going to be able to see it, for example, in your patients and, and be able to make the right diagnosis. Um, so, so that meant a lot for me kind of in, in this story and really in my career. Um, my career has been that of a kind of a public health trained pediatrician um, where the things, the consequences or the illnesses or the trajectories of my patients aren't really based on what I see in front of me, but really because of things that I can't see, like, like poverty or, or lack of nutrition or housing insecurity or all these other kind of more upstream injustices. Um, but also very, um, in regards to this story, like, you know, I've taken care of hundreds of children with lead poisoning, both in Detroit and in Flint, and I never even knew before the water crisis of the possibility of lead being in water. Um, in all of my patient encounters, it was always pain, 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 dust, dust, soil, you know, makeup, or all these other kind of random causes of lead exposure. So my mind never even knew about the possibility um, of lead being in water. So that, that also gets at the title. Um, the title also refers to the very literal, what the eyes don't see. We don't, we don't see lead in water. Um, do you guys remember those pictures of Flint of like brown water coming out of people's taps? Um, that wasn't lead. That was from iron corrosion that created that rusty colored water. We don't see lead in water. We also don't see the consequences of lead exposure. It's well known in medicine and public health to be a silent pediatric epidemic. Like, I wish patients would come to me with like bright green spots when they're exposed to lead, um, but they don't. And just like in many environmental health situations from like bad air or other contaminants in our water, we don't see the consequences right away. And they don't present for years, if not decades later. Um, and then the, there's other many other reasons or other kind of um, uh, ways to interpret the title. But I think um, the most important reason why I love this title and why I chose this title is really getting at what Senator Ananik mentioned. What the eyes don't see is also very much about people and places and problems 
that we choose not to see. There was a blindness towards Flint. People literally closed their eyes, even when they knew something was wrong, and they looked away. And what I hope that this you know, book and this story conveys is really kind of our, our obligation to open our eyes, to not be so myopic, uh, to have a, an, you know, a different level of empathy and understanding to our neighbors, um, and to open really each other's eyes. So that's a little bit about what the title means. <laughs> As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. The two of you have spent the last four years, five years, uh, trying to bring visibility to the things, to all of the things that you just said we don't see. Uh, all of the things that were happening in Flint, all of the things that have happened to the people there. Um, and I want to go back to the beginning of that tale, that narrative, trying to bring visibility to that. Uh, this wasn't easy. It wasn't as though you raised your hands and said, hey, hold on a second, something wrong with the water, and everybody snapped to and did what they were supposed to do. Um, I want to go back to that initial finding that you had um, and have you talk about the reaction to it and how you reacted to that reaction, uh, whether you expected uh, that and then how you sort of thought, this is how we can actually get something done about this. Yeah, so, you know, Jim shared, or Senator Ananik shared um, how, <laughs> how folks... Um, you know, knew something was wrong and they were raising their voices and the people of Flint have been and, and were and continue to be um, heroic and loud and organized and they knew something was wrong with this water. Um, and then we had incredible journalists and investigative journalists who were really trying to shed light on this issue who were also being silenced. And we had a, a whistleblower from the EPA, really unsung hero, Miguel, who was also trying to raise his voice and shed light. Um, my, uh, my, Mark Edwards from Virginia Tech, this amazing, renowned MacArthur genius, lead and water expert who, when he heard something was wrong with the water from a, an amazing Flint mom, literally packed his minivan overnight with like grad students and supplies and drove up to Flint from Blacksburg, Virginia, which is like in the middle of nowhere, um, and worked hand in hand with the people of Flint to also see like what was going on with the water. All the legislators who knew something was wrong, who were trying to bring attention to this, there were so many people who were trying to put a spotlight on, Phil, on Flint. And throughout, every, every, after everybody raised their voice, there was dismissals and denials and, and reassurance that everything was okay. Um, literally quotes that, you know, the people of Flint need to relax. Um, when General Motors stopped using this water, just a few months after the water switch, General Motors, born in Flint, still has plants in Flint, Notice the engine parts were corroding, like our drinking water was corroding engine parts. Um, and they were allowed to go back to the Great Lakes water. And, and then, you know, the people in charge once again reassured uh, the residents of Flint that everything was okay. Um, and, and at the same time, I was also reassuring my patients that everything was okay. I, I talk about this in the book. Moms would come to clinic and they would ask me during this year and a half period, um, should I be giving my baby, you know, powdered formula mixed with this water? Should I be bathing my children in this water? Are you sure we should have eight glasses of water a day instead of pop or soda or juice? 
And throughout this time, I was also very much reassuring my patients because everybody else in charge, all the other scientists, all, you know, all the government officials were saying everything was okay. Um, and, and that really changed for me and my life literally changed when I heard about the possibility of lead and water, which happened really very much by serendipity as, as you read in the book. Uh, it happened because a high school girlfriend happened to be over. Um, we planned a last minute barbecue, like literally texting, like hours before, come over, you doing anything? No, come over, bring the kids, come over, okay, my husband's gonna barbecue, great. Um, and she came over and she, she turns out, is a drinking water expert, like bonus. Um, <laughs> formerly worked at the EPA in the Office of Drinking Water, uh, was at the EPA in Washington, D.C. during a very similar lead and water crisis. And in my kitchen, she cornered me in my kitchen and shared that the water wasn't being treated properly and that it was missing something called corrosion control, which until then I had never heard of. Um, and she said, because of that, there would be lead in the water. And that's when my, that's when my life changed. I mean, nobody plays around with the word lead. It's, um, we know what it does. It's, you know, the science is clear. It's been clear for centuries. Um, we also know that Flint kids already had higher rates of lead exposure, and we now scientifically know that there's no safe level. You know, levels industry told us were okay decades ago, we now know are not okay. Um, so, you know, when I heard that, I knew um, that if I wanted to make a difference in the story, that if I wanted to protect my patients, who I have literally taken an oath to protect, that I would need to come up with the science, the data, the evidence that they were in harm's way, and that's really what pushed me to do my research. Yeah. Uh, Jim, you are not a person, uh, and I've known you a while, uh, who's used to being in the position of being powerless. Uh, when you say something, people pay attention. Uh, you have enormous amounts of power at your disposal as an elected official. Talk about how it felt to be saying, hey, something's wrong in the place that I represent with the people I represent and have people that you work with uh, say, hmm, I don't think that's true. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very extremely frustrating and uh, you start to question yourself. Like maybe, I mean, these folks are supposed to know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just wrong. And there's just a bunch of just really weird ways of how we got to the place where we felt so comfortable that we knew we had to keep saying it until we could get, um, so we could get the story out. I had a, I went to Michigan State about 25 years ago. I met her brother in Welcome Week uh, and James Madison. And so obviously I knew who she was. I mean, we weren't, we weren't like friends or anything, but I, when she moved up to Hurley, he asked me to, to keep an eye out for her and all those kinds of things. And, and uh, so I, you know, I was uh, familiar with who she was. Most of my high school buddies went to U of M. I went to Michigan State. And one of their college roommates was a guy named John Carlo, or we called him JC. He sends me a clip from an ACLU reporter about what's going on in Flint. And I say, okay, this is real, right? This is all the things we've been saying and thinking were true. This is real. And then I find out about, you know, uh, this Dr. Mark Edwards guy and I check in with him and the, you know, the administration governor's office say, oh, he's a, wherever he goes, he finds, I can't remember the exact He's a magician. He's a he magician. pulls he rabbits pulls, out of hats. Yeah. And, but then after a while you get, you get this investigative reporter doing amazing work and, and this scientist Michigan and all these radio, people, so many people, Michigan Radio and other folks doing all this work. Uh, and then we kind of circle back and we, we, Dr. Mona and I reconnect. And I, I'm, I'm in a meeting with the DEQ and the EPA with Congressman Kildee and they 
try to, you know, they said she's splicing and dicing her work and all these things. And, and I'm, you know, we're, we're saying, as you said, I'm over and over again, there is a problem here. Why won't you acknowledge that? Why don't we look into it? What's the very, what's the wrong, what's the, what's the downside of looking in to see if we're things we've been telling, you've been telling people are wrong. And then all the barriers started coming up and all the sort of the talk you get when you're, when you're trying to diminish, diminish someone or, or, or you're just doing sort of talking points. And it was over and over and over again. So many times we heard the word impossible. Like, you know, can, you know why can't we switch back to Great Lakes water? It's, it's impossible. impossible. The, the pipe was sold. Yeah. It could never happen. It never happened. Over and over and over again. Uh, it, was, it was a real awful time. There's no question about it. Because you just felt completely powerless even though... I, by that time I had felt we had the evidence solid. There was, a, there was no doubt about it. No matter what they said. And how could you know this and not want to protect people and they continued to stonewall us for a lot longer than they should have and for a long period of time it was still a spin it was a lot of pr and less public health than it should have been the the, the uh that was that was another really frustrating piece jim i'm going to ask you about the governor who was the governor at that point rick snyder uh who you who you had a working relationship with. You had to uh, as, uh, as a member of the Senate and as, as the minority leader. Sure. Tell us about the one-on-one conversations you had with him and, and about Flint and what he said. He, was some, he would repeat some of the things that were, were mentioned. Um, like when he, when, he, when he says publicly he knew of the water crisis on a certain date, from my calendar meetings, I know that wasn't true because I know I had told him about it in September. Uh, for time frame, a lot of this this information was building and kind of crescendoed into s- September. We finally got sort of the sort of out there by October that this was a, a problem that nobody could deny anymore, even though people kept this trying. This is in twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. Twenty fifteen, yeah. yes. And then we started these weekly meetings. Uh, they did a press conference when they were trying to just say they were going to. There was a, the first initial reaction was we're going to switch back once they finally acknowledged they were going to switch back to the to the great DWSD back then that uh, they were going to pay, I think, $2 million. The Mott Foundation was going to pay Four some million. portion. And, and, and uh, obviously, this has all changed since then. And then they did a press conference saying how great they were and how much they were really protecting people. They uh, also had a 12-point plan. It was just this beautiful like, 12-point uh, plan. poster of all the things that they were going to do. Yeah. Uh, and then I got up and basically called them out on what they were doing. And even though they invited me to the press conference, because um, I just wasn't going to allow them to continue to spin. It was about protecting people. I didn't even care about blame. It was just, how do we get this solved? And then we finally got them to declare an emergency and all these other things happening. And as time went on, it got to the place where we almost never talked. Uh, because in my opinion, he was either finding ways to diminish what was going on or to say one thing in public and do something opposite in, in, in a private. Uh, and it, it, you know, they would say, I, I apologize for what happened. And then they would do everything they could and have every spokesman they could try to diminish it and bl- sh- move blame around. And it was just, it just was unnecessary. It was not about the legacy of the governor. It was about people's health. And unfortunately, I just, I never could get them to, to fully understand that we were meeting once a week. Uh, it turned into every other week. Then it turned into other people being in the room. Uh, I was meeting with the high, you know, the chief of staff and all these in- in- individuals. And it felt like for a while we had a real chance of making real progress. Uh, and, 
you know, obviously we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars, both at the state and federal level, and we've raised more on the philanthropic side, and we've made improvements in a number of areas, but this could have been resolved a lot differently and a lot, uh, a lot sooner. We could have been a lot more health-focused. It's in large part, I think, because of their, his and his team's unwillingness to ever acknowledge that they really made a mistake, even though they would try to pretend like they acknowledged it. It's very frustrating and extremely disappointing. Uh, Dr. Mona, uh, this, the strength of uh, what you did here and what you write about in the book is your incredible faith in science and in the truth of science, that, that if you follow the science, you can find the truth and you can find solution. I wonder in retrospect, though, um, once the state did acknowledge that there was a problem and acknowledge that it needed to be fixed, did you feel as though they followed that science as closely as they could to come up with the best solutions. Uh, even once there was no question about any of this, uh, was science guiding the things that the state was doing? I think with us pushing them in that direction and sharing what the science was, um, but, but you're right, so I, I'm a scientist, I'm a pediatrician, I'm an academic, I, I, you know, I was presenting facts and science and it was being denied and dismissed. Um, which is another reason that I wrote this book because this is this is this weird, bizarro state of the world we're in right now, where, with denial of science and denial of facts, be it climate change or vaccines or where hurricanes are landing. Um, so, you know, I felt it was really important, you know, to to share a story of what happens when we deny science, and this is just basic, fundamental water treatment science was not followed. Um, fourth graders in, in Flint, in an area of Flint school, fourth graders conducted the corrosion experiments. Uh, they took Flint water and they took Great Lakes water and they put nails in them. And fourth graders show, showed that the Flint water was about 20 times more corrosive than the water that we were getting from, from Detroit. And these were experiments that the science said were too expensive and too complicated. So let Flint serve as you know this amazing lesson of the importance of science, not only what happens when we ignore science, also the value of and the power of science speaking tr truth to, to those in authority. But also, you know, we were very deliberate to make sure that we wanted science to lead our recovery. Um, and, and in terms of how we moved forward, we couldn't take away this crisis. There's no like magic pill or no antidote. This crisis was also not just specific to lead, uh, Legionnaire's outbreak where people died from pneumonia, skin issues, but also this broader kind of betrayal and these feelings of, uh, you know, loss of trust and anger and guilt, all those also lead to poor outcomes. This was like a big population level trauma. Um, so we have also leaned on the emerging science of, of trauma, of trauma informed care, of child development, of early adversity, of brain plasticity, this really holistic response that we've been able to put into place in Flint, um, especially for our youngest children um, it, it, towards the recovery. So we kind of created all this long list of demands of what we wanted from the state, from the feds, from philanthropy, leaning on this science of child devel development, things like um, you know early on home visits and high quality childcare and nutrition access and expanded Medicaid and WIC and all these things that we have been able to put in place in Flint. And that is all based on what the science tells us promotes the development of children. And when I was able to lean on that science, like here's Dr. Mona as a pediatrician and as a scientist um, sharing what needs to be done, I felt that I was able to get more of that 
rather than here's somebody who's really angry and, you know, you know, bangs her head at night because of what happened. Um, but when you lean on the science, I, I felt that we were more um, likely to get things to happen and, and more likely to get bipartisan support. Yeah. Same question to you, Jim, in a different context. Sure. Uh, once it was clear that uh, government had made this error, um, how have we done fixing that error and fixing it so that the possibility of that error repeating itself isn't terribly likely? Well, I mean, we're starting to see it happening in other communities, I mean, across the country. So as far as using Flint as, a, as an indicator of what not to do, you're, already see, you're seeing some deniers in these other communities as well. So I think people are more informed about uh, what to do. The citizens are more informed and more hopefully more empowered by learning what the citizens in Flint did, even though they were ignored. So I think that's an area where there's still improvement because we're gonna see this. We have lead pipes all across this country, so we have a lot of work to do there. Um, I think when it comes to, uh, as Dr. Mona said, we were able to uh, get a number of things appropriated when it comes to sort of the health care of people in Flint. I, I, not, not exactly everything we wanted, but we got a lot. Uh, and some things we just had to do within this, the framework of what was available. Um, you know, like we, we had expanded, med, expanded Medicaid for, for uh, younger people. That's just the way you can do it. Uh, we got as much as we could when it comes to health care, early interventions. And um, at first I was offended by it, then I completely understood it and supported it. We had this integrity monitor that had to be put in place on the dollars. And I thought, well, why, why would you think we couldn't spend, you know, what, you, know you, you guys thought we couldn't run our city. You, you came in, you brought somebody in, you screwed everything up. And then I thought, well, this is a way to make sure we show people that we're going to run these programs in a way that helps people and they're going to have results. And in almost every case, uh, those reports have come back with stellar uh, numbers saying that everything that we said we were going to do, we're doing. Um, and I think that's extremely important. So as far as the interventions, but, but I, think, and Dr., I think Dr. Mona would acknowledge this as well, you know, you still can't just flip a switch and say, trust, come back, right? So people have to sign up for these programs. And when you believe that people in government, and you don't know who they are, right, you don't, you, you don't distinguish between who's good and who's bad, are providing these programs for you, you still don't trust. So we, we have some issues for sure about building that trust and making sure that they access those programs. But I think when it comes to the foundation of what you should do if something terrible like this happens, I think those programs were a good start and they're having a positive effect. The problem is because of some of the exact factors that led us to having an emergency manager and having to be ignored, those poverty doesn't go away, right? That lack of, of access to a good paying job or to housing stability or all these other things, that didn't go away. It actually got worse during the crisis. So the, the, the issues got compounded, the problems got compounded, and we put interventions in and they're having an effect, but it's, we don't want to get back to just where we were. People deserve to get, you know, we need to have something better. And hopefully we're going to keep fights that Dr. Mona and I and a number of others are going to keep fighting for it's the reason why she set up the Flint Kids Fund, because we knew this was going to be a generational problem. So in some areas, I think we did a good job when it comes to the institutions. I mean, the city of Flint is still decimated. As that spiraling happened, we did nothing to sort of stabilize it. They handed the city back over to them, and there's nothing left. And so it's, it's going to be a long haul for us. In a number of areas, we're making improvements. Some other areas, we've got a ways to go. Um, but we have, you know, we've, I mean, I think we've, we've come together as a community, I think, in a real positive way, and I think that's, that's been helpful. Mm -hmm.
I would just reiterate uh, what Jim said. This, the water crisis on top, was on top of decades of crisis in Flint. Uh, really man-made policy choices that led to disinvestment and unemployment and poverty and racism and violence that, that left the city um, you know, with less than half of the population that it once was. And because in Michigan we depend on tax bases for schools and for infrastructure like water and policing and public health, it was almost a setup for something like the water crisis to happen and for us to be in this near bankruptcy state. So people ask often like, who are the villains of the crisis? And they want me to like name certain people. And like, the, you know, the villains are these long standing policies and these long standing ideologies of like austerity and, you know, you know, cuts to revenue sharing and racism and discrimination that really caused this crisis and perpetuated it um, and let it go on for so long. Dr. Mona, I want to depart just a little bit from, from talking about the, the crisis and its aftermath and, and have you talked some about the other part of this book, which as you pointed out is memoir uh, and you talking about where you come from, uh, but also where uh, this belief that you have and all the work that you're doing comes from. Uh, Talk about the personal story that's in this book. Yeah, so when I was writing this book, I, I set off to write a Flint book, um, and that's what I intended to do, a firsthand account of kind of my role and what happened in Flint. And it exceedingly became impossible to write a Flint book without telling you who I was. Um, it became impossible to tell you what I did without telling you where I came from and why I you know, work a certain way or where I, where I am or what, what I believe in. Um, and so really kind of woven into this story is very much this memoir, which is an immigrant story. Um, and then the last presidential election happened and I felt it was even more important to share this immigrant story um, as part of this book because we are in this, uh, time in our nation where the, the arms of Lady Liberty are not open as wide as they were when I first came to this country. Um, so this book is about, you know, this little girl who came to this country when I was four uh, from Iraq. We are Iraqi American. We came for what all immigrants come to this country for, for freedom and opportunity and democracy and the American dream. Um, and that was absolutely realized for me and my family. Um, I grew up where my diversity was, was celebrated. I, I, and as such, I grew up kind of confident and competent and really committed to service, committed to serving my community no matter where my community was. I think that's how I ended up in medicine and how I ended up in a, in a place like Detroit and then Flynn. Um, so the lens that I see the world is a lens of being every day grateful to be in this country. Absolutely every day grateful to be in this country, but also acutely aware of what injustice can be, uh, what people in power can do to vulnerable populations uh, there's a story in, in the book um, about the, um, I was 11 or 12 years old, and I can still picture it, and my father, who's over there, um, I went to his kind of back office where he was constantly kind of researching about like what was happening back home in Iraq and trying to be part of the op opposition movement. This was back when nobody even knew or had heard of Iraq, and, uh, and he showed me a picture that had, was just published, I think, in Amnesty International or Physicians uh, Human Rights Watch or something um, about a baby. It was a, it was the massacre in Halepcha uh, in northern Iraq, uh, and it was a picture of a, a dead baby on the ground with her father. 
And that was the first time I saw a dead baby and I was 11 or 12 and I literally had nightmares after that. Um, and I learned, you know, my parents never shielded us from what was happening back home. And um, here, was, uh, here was a whole population of people, 5,000 people died that day. They were poisoned uh, by Saddam Hussein because they were Kurds. He poisoned an entire city um, because, you know, this was, this was genocide. And, and, you know, from that very early age and even before then, I was raised that, you know, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, it is your job to fight for justice. Um, to, you know, to make sure that everybody has, you know, the same opportunities that, that I was blessed to have. Um, so that is embedded in this book. So it's very much kind of a family history. Um, another favorite part of my book is about my, my great uncle who fought in the Spanish Civil War with the, the Americans and the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, one of two Iraqis who left Baghdad to fight against Franco and the fascists. Like, that's really cool. Um, and that took a lot of research, um, getting his full files. Um, uh, but, you know, and I grew up hearing about my great uncle Nuri, who, like, you know, went and did all this and was always, you know, you know in jail or in prison but was fighting for right it wasn't about you know it wasn't about race or religion or country it was about freedom and opportunity um, so those were the ideals of my childhood and what I hope to impart in my children um, and that kind of created who I am and and why I do you know what I do I, I will say I'm glad the book didn't come up before the crisis, so obviously it wouldn't make sense, but you know, if Mona who? They, they, the one, the, one of the beautiful things about Mona is that they thought she was just this meek little doctor that didn't know anything about politics, and she did a great job of letting them think that until she had them so far wrapped around her finger that, that they, couldn't, they couldn't ignore her. And you know, I, like I said, I knew her brother, I knew his, I knew his background, he talked about his sister doing this. Uh, this work, uh, I think it was run an incinerator or something when they were in high school, uh, and, and uh, they did not know what they were going up against, but uh, <laughs> thank God they didn't. <laughs> right. Dr. Moni, I want to ask you a little more about that. Um, you know, you were doing the work that I think you were inspired to do as a child already when this, when this happened, and you know, that's what prepares you, I think, to, to, to play the role that you did. In retrospect, though, talk about the way that it changed you. Uh, talk about the way that Flint, this monumental event uh, that, that you play such a central role in, in fixing, uh, makes you different, um, either as a doctor or even as a person. Yeah, I think um, kind of my role in, in, this, in this crisis and in the recovery, uh, more importantly, um, has really reaffirmed uh, what you know my values and my training and and kind of the profession that I'm in. I went into pediatrics to be an advocate. It's always part of my job description. I, I'm a clinician. I'm a researcher. I'm an educator. But I also went into this discipline because of the ability to kind of use my voice and to speak up for children. You know, even before the water crisis, as a pediatrician, I would I would take my trainees and my students. Every year we would go to the state capitol and we would meet with legislators about kind of hot topics and for kids, we'd be at gun safety or immunizations or what have you. Um, and we would do role playing and advocacy training. So that was always part of my profession. Um, I also, I think, you know, before the water crisis, I was always a, a firm believer in government. Um, Jim mentioned uh, when I was a kid in high school, I grew up in Royal Oak. Um, we, were, we worked to shut down the incinerator in Madison Heights. 
And we got that shut down because we helped elect a local state rep. The very first thing he did when he was in the state legislature was say that you couldn't open an incinerator that close to an elementary school. It was literally in the shadows of this elementary school. And I'm like, oh my gosh, at this really early age in high school, I realized, wow, the power of like community activism and, and policymakers and, and good policies to improve you know, the health of population. So I've always believed that government could be this equalizer and could make things better in people's lives. And you know, the story of Flint, so many people think it's a story of like, oh, this is government failure. Mm -hmm. Like this is government failure at literally every level of, of government. Um, but for me, the story of, of Flint is really very much of, of how government can work for you. Um, so Flint lost democracy. So we had no like locally elected officials. But the, the folks that were elected, like Senator Ananick, like our state rep, our congressional delegation, Congressman Kildee, Senator Stabenow Peters, they never stopped fighting for Flint. Um, and they reaffirmed to me what good government can be. So that was also very much reaffirmed. Um, but something that, that changed kind of throughout this process, I used to think uh, as a pediatrician, like we kind of had a monopoly on caring for children. Like, I mean, like who else cares about kids like more than pediatricians? Um, and that I was proven wrong time and time and time again, because this story is not about one person. This story is about a team. Um, it is about this amazing team of folks that came together via serendipity or not. Um, that couldn't have been more different than each other, that were from so many different disciplines and walks of life that came together and because they didn't accept the status quo and they wanted to make things better for kids. Um, so I think that's what I have learned the most um, is to make friends with so many people who are different than you. Mm. And I think that's an incredibly important lesson in this time of extreme divisiveness that we're in is that we need to be able to work with folks um, who we never would have interacted with, either in our professional lives or our personal lives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to go back to, to policy uh, for a bit here. Um, Jim, you recently told the Metro Times that Flint will not be able to truly recover until those who poisoned our city are held accountable by the law. Um, we, we continue... Yeah, go ahead. You know, we continue to watch as the, the criminal dimension of this plays out. Um, I, I would imagine that the civil end of this, which we have started to see just a little of, will play out even longer uh, than, the, than the criminal end. But, but talk about what you mean by that. Those who poisoned our city should be held accountable. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, I, when we were trying to get to the bottom of things and just trying to get people to move on from just to give us safe water again, at the very least, I mean, it was, I, I said it wasn't about blame then. But I wanted to make sure that folks that knowingly, uh, you know, violated the law and thought so little of us that I think that I, 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 look, I'm not looking for a pound of flesh, but I think that in this country in particular, but obviously I think anywhere in the world, if you knowingly put people in harm's way and do everything you can to hide that information, you, you're not just, and someone, just because someone's told you to do it does not give you a free free pass. And I, so I'm not looking for any individual specifically. I think I want the law uh, to go where it needs to go. And that's the reason I've introduced the bill to allow for the, the, the extension and statute of limitations because we're at almost six years now and no one uh, effectively has been held accountable. 
um, for what happened. We spent millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. Twenty-four on, uh, million dollars. At, at the very least, right? We know that. On legal, uh, on, on legal. On legal expenses of very, very expensive lawyers and investigators and things like that. Um, and, you know, uh, we still don't have every pipe replaced in the city of Flint. We still don't make sure that every, every kid is getting every service that he or she may need. I mean, we just, uh, to me, it's just, it's, it's, un, it's unfathomable that we would, we would allow, well, one, for the t- statute of limitations to run out and, 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 and not make sure that people have a chance to get the justice they deserve, but that, but that when someone can do that to somebody with so little disregard for them as a human being, that there wouldn't be some consequences. And I just, I, I, you know, obviously I want to make sure we, I want every, I want every family member to be on the path to recovery. That's the most important thing. But I want to make sure that, that, um, that, that I think it sends a message to not do this to anybody else as well, right? If you can do it, if we're going to allow it to happen in my community, it can happen to anybody. And yeah, go ahead. Um. And, and I imagine you're also talking about kind of the, 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 the policy environment yes, 100%. Uh, here as well. So one policy issue here is the emergency manager law, which uh, there was a commission that the governor uh, embodied after this to, to, to take a look at the law and say, where did this go wrong? There were a bunch of recommendations made about changing it. Um, we haven't seen anything happen there. No, and, and it's funny, and I, I have to be honest. We've had a number of month, month-long conversations, three, four, five month-long conversations with the current Speaker of the House. Uh, they kind of dusted off some of that report and some of the thing that came from the bipartisan report and said, basically, why aren't we doing these? And I said, well, I introduced them. That's why, of course, <laughs> I want to do them. Uh, and we've reintroduced a number of those bills, and we're taking a look at, like, taking a deep dive into that. Now, obviously... I think the emergency manager law is flawed in a number of ways, uh, but I'd be willing to sort of take a stab at, you know, I mean, it's, it, if we can't fix it all the way the first time, if we can at least improve on it, there has to be something in place to make sure that the citizens aren't hurt. Uh, so every state has some version of this, but you can do that in a way that doesn't, that doesn't take away, and it, it, doesn't, uh, it still can empower the citizens, it doesn't take away their democracy. So there's ways to do this, and I've been pushing for quite some time to get some of those policies. So for me, you know, there was the accountability piece, and that was making sure that the, 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 the folks in the Attorney General's office sort of had the uh, ability to do what they needed to do. I don't, I don't want to be a part of those investigations. It's not my place. My place is to change policy and advocate for policy change and then make sure we have the resources. So, I mean, I think both those things still have to, have to be done. And I mean, obviously, we've appropriated a lot of dollars, and they've come to some really positive things as well. Mm-hmm. We still have more to do there, plus also making changes, uh, both on both on the emergency manager and some other areas as well. And what about the future of clean water in Flint? Uh, we still have something of a debate going on about Karagnandi versus DWSD, is that right? Uh, uh, is there a right way to sort of think through all of those things, given the crisis, uh, that, that puts us in a better place? Um, Karagnandi has been around for a long time, this idea that Flint should have its own uh, access to the water in, in Lake Huron and not depend on Detroit. Um, uh, put some of that in, in the context of all of this. Yeah, I mean, this could be its own <laughs> show. Yeah, do uh, it in two minutes. I'll do the best I can. So obviously, they've been for 50, 60 years, they've considered and they started buying up land to do their own uh, pipeline because 
for a long time, we were sort of at the, we were kind of beholden to Detroit, uh, the city of Detroit at the time, and now, but now they've taken away that, uh, during the bankruptcy, they take, took away the city's ability to sort of manage the water system. You know, now, the cynic in me, that I'm much more cynical than I was before, <laughs> when you look at even the Kiragandhi water issue, so obviously Genesee County was, was, building this, was building this pipeline, the city of Flint was going to go on to it. The city of Flint was the only one that went on Flint water, the rest of them were continuing to buy mm-hmm. from Detroit. But when Flint was the, one, of the, one of the largest customers, I hate to be the conspiracy theorist, but when you pull, there's a, I think there's more, there's more to uh-huh. austerity more than mm-hmm. just this was a way to save money for Flint. Right. It's a way to destabilize DWSD yeah. so they could justify taking it away from the city and giving it out to people in the suburbs. So I think there's also a piece to this. this, there's, a, this is a, there's a whole other story mm-hmm. that I think needs to be looked at mm-hmm. when it comes to just the politics of water whether it's, we're talking about here with Kiragandhi or DWSD or Great Lakes or the fact that we basically just give water to private companies. Nestle. You know, uh, a couple hundred miles away while we pay some of the highest water rates in the country. And we also are scrounging to find resources to make sure that we can take care of our water issues. Not just Flint, but we have PFAS all over the state. We're going to have it all over this country and we're Most scrounging PFAS around. sites in the country. I mean, and it's largely because we're the only ones looking for it, yeah. right? So we actually could be a leader in how to deal with another, with another water issue in a much more positive way, but we're, 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 we're using a Wayfair judgment settlement as our source to, to fix you know, water because we're, we're, we're unwilling to hold people accountable that polluted the water. So I think this is another, this is the next, this is another chapter in, uh, in our water issues that is a lot more to it. It is, it is, it is becoming a commodity and it's now treated as such. It's mm-hmm. not about, you know, one of the important factors of being healthy and having an important thing for all of us to have. It's now, it's something that's worth money. Yeah. And so that means it's going to be taken from people and moved around. And some people are going to get better deals and others aren't. And better um, quality water. And, and, it's, it's, and, and then the quality issue uh, is also another, yeah. so another component. All of Genesee County is on the KWA pipeline, except for Flint, except Flint which right. has signed a long-term deal, I believe, with Gliwa, the Great Lakes Water Authority, to, to stay on, on the Detroit water. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, is that an acceptable solution going forward? I think it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, whenever you change a water source, you create trauma right. to You're pipes. You're introducing... And it's, it, yeah. you know, there's new things that need to be monitored. I think stability is really important. Uh, to stay in that same water source until uh, the pipes heal, until the corrosion control takes full effect. So I, I think it, it was a good idea to stay on Detroit water. Okay. With everything I have to do with, I have to deal with the, the policy, but also the politics. Yes. Um, I think there could have been a better deal for Flint, but I think the, having a source switching, going back to a source, switching again, would have done... It's too a, much trauma. It would have trauma both to the system, but also to people. Mm-hmm. The trust wasn't there. Um, but the fact that we don't have a permanent seat on the Great Lakes Water Authority, uh, we have a, a gubernatorial seat that's been sort of promised to us, and right. so far that promise has been kept, but that, there's no requirement to keep it. Yeah. Um, I think we should have, I think if anybody should be at the table making sure that their voice is heard about the quality of water and the cost of water, it's someone from Flint. It should be Flint. Um, so I, I think that's a piece that, that's, that's missing that I, yeah. I'd like to see change, but I think um, I agree that the the, the, the damage that could have been done, both psychologically, but also the quali- the, to the system, yeah. another change would have, would have been very difficult. Yeah. 
Dr. Mone, I want to end with you and, and a uh, quote from the book. Um, you talked about in the wake of the crisis, many people in Flint suffering from community-wide PTSD. Um, and I think that's a really interesting framework to think about the future um, of the city and how you heal from that and uh, the things that you're doing now that I know uh, are aimed at making things better for people um, in the city. But, but talk about that concept of community-wide PTSD and how you fix it. Yeah, so that's the science that we are using and framing uh, what happened. It's this community-wide trauma. And, and if you, you're in Flynn or you talk to people from Flynn, it's, it's real and it's raw. Um, the emotions are, are here. To, they're still here today. Uh, people are still dealing with the everyday kind of availability of water, how they're going to afford the water. Do they trust the water? Um, but also with those very kind of raw and personal feelings of, is my kid going to be okay? Um, and also, like, I gave my kid this water, even though in my gut I thought maybe it was not right, but everybody was telling me it's okay. So there's all these other emotions that are part of this, this population-wide trauma. Uh, so as a community, we've really been really trying to address that trauma through trauma-informed care, not only in medicine and healthcare, but also in our education system, um, and with all folks who kind of interact with families and home visitors and what have you. Uh, and also building efforts uh, that promote resilience in children and families to, to mitigate the impact of this crisis. Like I said before, we can't take it away, uh, but there's a lot that we can do that not only improves the lives of children, but families and communities. Not only things like healthcare and you know literacy support and high quality childcare, but also the bigger things that Jim talked about, like economic development and, and participatory democracy and restorative justice and self-determination, all these bigger things that are also very critical to addressing this trauma and really to, to recover and to heal in the future. Okay. We want to thank Senator Jim Ananek, Democrat from Flint, for joining us to talk about his experience during the Flint water crisis. And we especially want to thank pediatrician and author Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha for taking the time to talk about her work and her book throughout this year's project, Exploring the Crisis, What the Eyes Don't See. And of course, thank you for listening. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host. Stephen Henderson.